Well, good morning, church. If you're going to take your Bibles out with me, as we turn our attention to God's Word, we're going to turn to the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at chapter 40 this morning. If you're looking at those black Bibles that are in the chair, underneath the chair that you're sitting on, it should be found on page 33, and, and I encourage you to follow along as we read God's Word together. Uh, from time to time, we want to remind you that if you don't own a Bible that you can read uh, at your home, that black Bible net chair is our gift to you. Take that home, read it, read it carefully, pray through it, ask questions. We would love to have God's word in your hands. So take it as a gift from our church to you if you don't own a Bible that you can read. This past May, I had the privilege of meeting a man named Raymond Flanks. He was a, he's a 60-year-old African-American who spent 36 years of his life in a Louisiana state penitentiary serving a life sentence for a murder that he did not commit. Because the prosecution withheld certain key evidence in his trial, the jury that was trying him did not have all the facts, and Mr. Flanks was unjustly convicted of murder. And so from 1985 all the way up until 2022, Mr. Flanks sat in jail labeled a murderer, and yet knowing he didn't do it. But he had no other option than to wait. Year after year, for 36 years. Eventually, the Innocence Project took his case, revisited the facts, and noticed that there was evidence that was withheld from a grand jury testimony. They also noticed evidence that was um, altered in order to make a case against him. And so they brought it back to the court's attention. And once it became clear that Mr. Flanks was falsely accused, the state vacated his sentence and Raymond Flanks was released on November 17th, 2022. When a reporter asked Mr. Flanks how he didn't lose hope after spending almost four decades of his life in prison for a crime he did not commit, he said, when you're honest with yourself and you know that you're not guilty for a crime that you were accused of, it gives you a sense of hope because you know you didn't do it. There is a seed in you every morning when you wake up and you know that there is a God. Mr. Flanks lost 36 years of his life that he can't get back. And thankfully, today, he is free. He's out of prison. And that seed of hope that he held on to day in and day out has now sprouted. It's bearing fruit. But what about those who are left waiting? Who are still in the pit? What about those who, in their waiting, that seed of hope that Mr. Flanks talks about, that seed of hope has shriveled and is on the verge of dying? You don't have to be falsely accused in a prison cell in order to understand how difficult waiting is. I think most of us have some experience of the difficulty and frustration and the pain of having to wait. And when another day and another week and another year passes by without the answer that we're waiting for, 
the test results that we hope for, that we're still waiting for, or the change that needs to happen in our life or another person that we love that we're still waiting for. The longer we wait, the heavier that burden becomes until it can feel unbearable at times, impossible to bear. There are times that we reach a breaking point in our waiting when, when frankly, we don't even care if the answer is yes or no. I just want to know what the answer is so I can get out of the limbo of waiting and just move on with my life because waiting is hard. Well, that's where we find Joseph at this morning. We were introduced to Joseph in chapter 37 of Genesis, and we see him again here in chapter 40. And though he was betrayed by his brothers, and though they threw him into a pit and left Joseph to die, and though he was sold into slavery, and though he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and though he was thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit, chapter 39, which we looked at last week, ends repeatedly telling us, and yet, The Lord was with Joseph. That, that reality of the presence of God and not his circumstances was the basis of his hope. It's encouraging. But what if we are stuck in that pit? What what if we're stuck in the trial and we're left to wait Not in a comfortable waiting room, but in the depths, in the darkness, and in the trial that we're in. Like a student who is relieved to finally hear the school bell ring at the end of the day, and they know, finally, I can get out of this lesson. When we're in the midst of a trial, we might long for the bell to ring so we can move on with our life. But what happens if God doesn't ring the bell? And we're left waiting in that school of trial. Waiting, in that instance, can be a whole other form of suffering. And that's where we find Joseph at in Genesis 40. So look with me at God's word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 40. This is God's word, church. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine and before me, and on the vine there, was, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. 
Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them in Pharaoh, into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were, in his, you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cakes, three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now next week when we get to chapter 41, Lord willing, we're going to see how the events that we read about in chapter 40 are the events that set in motion how Joseph will be released. And he will rise from the pits of this dungeon until he becomes the second in command of all of Egypt in order to save them from a famine that God brings upon the land. But that's next week. We're not looking at chapter 41 this morning. And our text this morning in chapter 40 ends in verse 23. It ends with Joseph stuck in prison. It ends with Joseph being forgotten by the cupbearer. As the reader, we know that eventually Joseph's going to get out. We know that eventually he'll rise to second in command in Egypt. But Joseph is not a reader like we are. He is in the story. He can't see what we see. All that Joseph can see, if we put ourselves in his shoes, all that Joseph can see are the prison walls, the chains around his feet, and the iron collar around his neck. So, how is Joseph supposed to trust God when he's forgotten? How can we trust God when we feel forgotten? That's kind of the big idea of chapter 40. If you're taking notes, the big idea of chapter 40 is this. When God's people feel forgotten, they trust God who is at work for their good. When God's people feel forgotten, they trust God who's at work for their good. With that big idea in mind, what I want us to do is walk through chapter 40, scene by scene, to see what God is teaching us through chapter 40. And scene number one is this. Bloom 
where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. This is verses one through eight of our text. Now we saw in chapter 40 that the, the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer of the king and the baker had offended the king of Egypt. Not a good thing to do. And they were thrown into the prison where Joseph was for their sin. Now, Joseph is not where he wants to be, obviously. But rather than complaining, rather than pouting, Joseph is a good example of somebody who simply blooms wherever he's planted. He just does the next thing in front of him that he knows to do. Joseph may not understand what God is up to, but one of the things that this text shows us is that God is sovereign in every detail of the story. And God's sovereignty is what's causing Joseph to prosper. In the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker being, we, we see God's sovereignty in the cupbearer and the king of Egypt, of the king of Egypt and the baker being placed in the same prison as Joseph. Of all the prison cells, he gets placed in Joseph's. We also see God's sovereignty in the dreams that they have and the interpretations that Joseph gives. And Joseph makes it clear that this is of God in verse eight when he says, hold on, hold on, do not interpretations belong to God? Friends, it's, it's a simple reminder. When we, when we look at this, the start of this text, it kind of sets the scene for us. The reason that all things work for the good of those who love God, the reason that verse is true is because God is sovereign over every detail of our lives. As Ephesians 1 says, he is the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Not just some things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, including, friends, the bad things. The language that Moses uses in chapter 40 reminds us that Joseph is not staying at the Holiday Inn, right? He uses phrases like, in custody, in the prison, confined. And that language of in custody, in the prison, confined, is language of imprisonment. And that language is used seven times in the first eight verses. He's not at the Holiday Inn. He's in a really tough spot in prison. In fact, the word for confined can be translated as bound. He's in chains. In fact, Psalm 105 verse 18 actually serves as a commentary where Psalm 105 verse 18 tells us that Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. That was what his situation was in this prison. How long? How long was Joseph there? Well, the end of verse 4 says, they continued for some time in custody, in chains, in the pit. So we don't know exactly how long some time was, but we do know that if you combine his time in slavery with Potiphar, and we combine that with his time in prison, we do know that if you combine that time up till now, it's 11 years. We don't know what the mixture is of those 11 years, what time was spent in prison, which time was spent in, in, as a slave, but all of this from the time he was bought as a slave and put into prison, it's 11 years. 11 years. When we sang earlier, dear refuge of my weary soul, you may have thought, man, why are we singing such a dirge of a song 
at a funeral maybe, but why on Sunday morning? The reason we sing songs like that, friends, is because sometimes, like Joseph, you walk in here on Sunday and you're weary. You're waiting. You're discouraged. And what do miserable Christians sing on Sunday mornings when they're weary and discouraged? When they've waited so long that they're not sure if their faith's going to last the next week? What do miserable Christians sing on days like that? We sing songs like Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul where we can pour out our hearts to God saying, listen, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust and still my soul would cleave to thee though prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here, let my soul retreat with humble hope, attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here, let my soul retreat with humble hope, attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. When my family and I were flying home from Thailand a few weeks ago, we had a two-hour layover in um, Doha, Qatar. Whether you say Qatar or Qatar, it's your choice, but we had a two-hour layover in the Qatar airport. And, and it, was, it, was, it was kind of a, a jarring experience for me because after several weeks of being surrounded by Thai people who are very pleasant people, uh, I was really startled by one passenger who was waiting for the same plane home as we were, who was furious. And she became furious because she was not allowed to take her cup of coffee through the security gate, while another passenger was allowed to take a closed container through. She was an American, and her fury came out as one who was entitled, whose expectations for herself were not met. Friends, in the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial. Do not be surprised. Oh, what's, why is this happening? Do not be surprised at the painful trial that you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. You see what the apostle's doing? He's equipping the reader, saying, you've got to set your expectations right in a fallen world. You live in a fallen world that's broken because of sin. You live in a fallen world that hates the God that you love. Don't think of painful trials that come as something strange. And so Moses, knowing that God's people that he's writing to are going to go through hardships and trials and suffering, he does the same thing through Joseph's story. God's people should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when the world hates us. We should not be surprised when we are mocked or ridiculed or overlooked or even fired or face some sort of hostility because we love the God that the world hates. Don't be surprised at the painful trial, Christian. God is equipping us through this story of Moses, or uh, Moses is equipping us 
inspired by God to set our expectations right. And, 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 and the aim of this setting expectations is not to make us cynical or pessimistic, kind of like Eeyore. Rather, it's helping us to hold on to the hope even when we're in the midst of the pit. Now, in chapter 37, God had given Joseph two dreams where it was God's revelation to Joseph about his future, that, that one day God would raise Joseph up into a very prominent role. But after being betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, slandered by Potiphar's wife, now stuck in prison, the two dreams that God had given as his word to Joseph seemed like it wasn't going to happen. It's been 11 years. Those dreams seem to have been shattered at this point. And yet when the cupbearer and the baker come into prison, Joseph doesn't lose hope. Joseph could have become cynical. He could have ignored them. He could have said, oh, you got dreams? I've been waiting 11 years for dreams to be happen. God told me 11 years ago this was going to happen. I'm still waiting. Why would I help you? Just give up. And yet he doesn't become cynical. He doesn't fall into unbelief. He doesn't doubt. He doesn't lose hope. Suffering has a way of making us self-centered like that in our problems. But Joseph doesn't fall into that self-centered self-pity. Instead, look at verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. And so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were in the custody of his master's house, why are you downcast? So they had troubling dreams. There was no professional dream interpreter in the prison. Their thinking of dreams was that it was was telling them something about their their future, and they didn't have anybody to tell them what it meant. They had no way to prepare for the future, so they were troubled. They were anxious. They were distressed. Joseph could have said, forget you. I got my own problems. But Joseph didn't lose faith in the God who gives dreams and interprets dreams. Listen, if if Joseph went into prison expecting the world to celebrate his decision to trust God, if he expects the world to celebrate his decision to follow God, even when Potiphar's wife is trying to get him into bed with her, then he would have sunk into self-pity like the entitled lady at the airport. He would have been stuck in self-centeredness, thinking about his woes and his problems. He wouldn't have the wherewithal to look up. But instead of complaining, Joseph steered clear of self-pity, and he was set free to not be preoccupied with his own woes, but he was set free to look up and to care for the needs of others. Why? Because he was confident in a good God who he knew loved him. And knowing that God loved him and was watching out for him, he was set free to look out for the needs of others. Friends, one one way we demonstrate our faith as the people of God is by considering how we can love and how we can care for others even when our life is not going the way that we had planned. This love, which is otherworldly, reveals a confidence in a God who's with us in the pit. 
It reveals a confidence in a God who loves us, who's looking out for us. We don't have to be the one who's looking out for ourselves because we have a God who is looking out for us and we're set free to care for others. Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, verse 44, love your enemies, pray for them, bless those who persecute you. Who does that? Those who are confident in the love of God. Friends, if we as a church are busy complaining and being offended as entitled people, how will we pray for those who persecute us? How will we bless those who persecute us? How will we tell the good news of those who mock us for trusting Jesus? Somebody shared with us. What is your response in trials reveal about your heart? Scene number two, a glimmer of hope. Bloom where you're planted, scene number one. Scene number two, a glimmer of hope. This is verses nine through 19. So with the scene set now and they, 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 they have these dreams uh, and, and um, Joseph comes to them and reminds them that God is the one who gives interpretations, they now tell Joseph their dreams. The two prisoners uh, had dreams where interpretations belonged to God. So he, he, he says, tell me your dreams. The, the, first, cup, the first dream is the cupbearer. He, he tells Joseph that, that about, about this vine with three branches and, 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 and it quickly blooms and grapes form and, and in a matter of seconds, uh, it produces wine. It's kind of like watching a nature video of a plant whose three month of growth is seen in three seconds. So these vine branches, immediately there's wine and he squeezes the grapes into a cup and he hands Pharaoh the cup. What's the interpretation? Well, God made it clear to Joseph in verse 13. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Now when a king entered the room in Moses' day, every head would bow down in homage and in submission to the king. And so this idea of lifting up the head is a beautiful picture of the king coming to the one who's bowed before him and gently taking that person by the chin and lifting that person's head until their gaze is eye to eye. It's a picture of Fellowship, the king coming to you and saying, look at me and come into fellowship with me. I give you access. And so that's what he's saying that will happen in three days to the cupbearer. The king will lift up his head and he will be restored to his former position as the chief cupbearer. When David ran for his life from his own son, he used the same image of lifting up of the head of God. In Psalm 3, verse 3, David, David is fretting because the nations are saying, there's no salvation for you in God. But then he remembers in Psalm 3, verse 3, but you, O Lord, you are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. It's not just the king of Egypt that does this. It's our king, our God, who gently lifts up, us up by the chin and restores fellowship with us. Well, when the baker hears a very 
favorable interpretation of the cupbearer's dream. He's eager to get his dream interpreted as well. And, and it's a similar dream. But instead of three branches, his dream involved three cake baskets on his head with birds eating the baked goods on the top of his head. What's the interpretation? Well, God gives the interpretation to Joseph, and it's bad news. And Joseph, like a faithful preacher, tells the person what God says, whether it's good news or bad news. Verse 19, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, your head from you and hang you on a tree. The dreams in chapter 40 are not a result of indigestion. The dreams in chapter 40 are not a mere reflection of subconscious longings. And the interpretation given to the baker makes that clear, right? God gave the dreams and God gave the interpretations. And so as with Joseph's dreams in chapter 37, the dreams here in chapter 40 are God's word about the future. Now, what do we do with that? Should we look to dreams to tell us God's word today? I said this earlier in chapter 37, it doesn't, it does me no harm to tell you again. God can and may still speak to people through dreams. He is God. He can do what he wants. <laughs> but friends, at this point in salvation history, God has given us his word. In the Old Testament and the New Testament and the scriptures. Hebrews 1 reminds us this. Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, including dreams, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, which are now, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, what scripture is saying is that the Bible is how we hear God's voice now. It's how we know his will today. And so everything that we feel or think or dream, whatever it is that we're looking at, needs to be tested according to God's word, which is how we hear his voice and know his will. Well, after interpreting the cupbearer's dream and the baker's dream, Joseph makes a request after the cupbearer's dream in verse 14. Look back up at verse 14. He says to the cupbearer, okay, remember me. <laughs> remember me. Don't forget me. Remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. So get me out of this house. I did nothing wrong. I, didn't, I don't belong to be here. This is an injustice. So just give, give a good word for me to the king. It's interesting here that he doesn't say to the cupbearer, if it goes well for you. He says, when it goes well for you. In other words, even though he has waited 11 long, painful years for God's word about him to be fulfilled, he has not lost faith in God. He trusts that God's word is going to come true for what he said to the cupbearer. Three days. It's not if but when it goes well for you. And so as a result, Joseph, knowing that the cupbearer is about to get out of prison, he asks him twice, will you remember me? Will you make mention of me when you get out? And he refers to this mentioning, this remembering of him to the king as a kindness, the text says. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It's, 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 it's God's covenant love, his unfailing, loyal, steadfast love. Do this. Don't forget. 
be loyal to me, show me this kindness. Joseph does not want to stay in prison one minute longer than necessary. Scene number one, bloom where you're planted. Scene number two, a glimmer of hope. Scene number three, our last scene, hope deferred. Hope deferred. This is verses 20 through 23. Look with me again at verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. So God was faithful. God kept his word. He did exactly as he had said, as he had revealed in the interpretation to Joseph. And so when the cupbearer was released and the cupbearer is restored to his honor position, just as Joseph had interpreted, it's good news. It's a glimmer of hope for Joseph. And so it's not hard to imagine that on day three, when the, when the, the prison doors open up, the cupbearer is restored to his position, it's not hard to imagine Joseph being like, yes! We can imagine him rolling up his, his prison cell mat and he's just waiting there. It's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. He promised me kindness, he promised me loyal love, he promised that he's gonna remember me, he's gonna mention me to Pharaoh, it's just a matter of time till I get out of here. I've waited 11 years for this. And the cupbearer knew his plight. The cupbearer had promised And as he waited, as Joseph waited, someone walks by the door, Joseph would stand up. Surely this, this is the moment. The door's gonna open, I'm gonna be released. Only to see that person walk by the prison door. Have to wait longer. His hope would have burned bright at first and then day one would go by, no release. Day two, no release. Day three, no release. Day four, five, six, seven. A whole week would pass. Eventually, reality would sink in. Verse 23 is that reality. Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him in prison, in shackles, in the pit. And he'd done nothing wrong. Now, if we peek ahead, the first verse of chapter 41 will say, after two whole years. So, how long does he have to wait? Two more whole years. And it's no accident that in chapter 40, verse 15, Joseph refers to where he's at as the pit. It's the same word, that word for pit is the same word that he used in chapter 37 for where his brothers threw him in. That pit in chapter 37. And so the life of Joseph from 37 until chapter 40 is that he has continuously gone from one pit to another pit. You ever feel that way? That was Joseph's reality. And the cupbearer's release gave him finally a, a glimmer of hope. But now he's forgotten. Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
God could have remember, God could have caused the cupbearer to remember. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what I said to Joseph. God could have jogged his memory. God could snap his fingers and get Joseph out of prison, just like he did for the cupbearer. He's God. Joseph had done nothing wrong. Joseph has waited 13 years. Where was God? What was he doing? Over and over, people forget Joseph. Had God forgotten him? It's not hard to imagine that question rolling through Joseph's mind. I imagine that's what I'll be wrestling with. Dear refuge of my weary soul. (laughs) The cupbearer failed him. The cupbearer failed to show Joseph the kindness, the chesed, the loyal love that he promised. But look back with me at chapter 39, verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph. Referring to his time in prison. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. It's the Hebrew word chesed. God was with Joseph in the prison. God was showing him chesed. He was showing him this covenantal, loyal, unfailing love that the cupbearer failed to show him. God was at work in his trial. God was transforming Joseph from a immature teenager who foolishly told his brothers about his dreams and he's transforming him into a steadfast leader equipped with wisdom and humility and a faith, an unshakable faith in God that will qualify him to be the number two in command of all of Egypt and to save many from a famine. Now, Joseph had no way of knowing all that God was doing. Joseph did not have a sneak peek into the timetable of God. But friends, Joseph's life is a reminder for us. It is a reminder for the people of God that though people may forget us, though people may forsake us, even if our own mother and father would, would forget us, God will not His love will not fail you. His love is a chesed. It is is an unfailing, it is a loyal, covenantal, I will not break this love that I have for you. I'm with you. I love you. I'm not going anywhere. You may not understand all that he's doing. You You may not know his timetable, but he will not let you down. Friends, if, like Joseph, you're in a season of waiting, you know something of how hard waiting can be. Especially when what you're waiting for is important. If what you're waiting for is not important, it doesn't matter. But if it's important, if it's valuable to you, if it matters, it can be a heavy load to bear. Waiting can feel unbearable. But this text reminds us that in our waiting, God is at work, even if we can't see it. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Who says that? Paul does. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance 
produces character, and character produces hope. And hope, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. As one writer notes, for Paul, suffering not only doesn't extinguish hope, for Paul, suffering actually produces hope in the Christian by training us in endurance, and and endurance producing character and character producing hope. You cannot learn how to run a marathon by reading a book. You've got to put on the shoes, you've got to go out on the trail, and you've got to sweat and run and, and, and push yourself to build endurance. In the same way, you can't get character from a book. Character comes from those difficult times where we are left to walk with God and wait on God and even struggle with God and wonder how long, oh God, and be tempted to leave God and yet for God to remind us, I'm with you. My love won't fail you. And in those dark seasons to experience the truth that even when we can't see him, God is with us. He will not forget us. He will not forsake us. And his love will not fail us. In the dark, lonely, unbearable times of waiting, when what is important to us is at stake or even lost, How can you be sure of God's presence? How can you be sure of God's unfailing love for you? This is not just some fairy tale. How can you be sure when, like Joseph, you're stuck in a pit? You're waiting for the bell to ring so you can get out of this trial and you're still waiting. How can you be sure of God's love and his presence? Well, friends, in an important way, Joseph is not the end of Joseph. In an important way, Joseph is a signpost that points us forward to Jesus. Because because of our sin, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, because of our sin and our rebellion against God, like the baker, (laughs) we deserve to die. I don't know if you thought of identifying yourself with the baker in this story, but like the baker, we deserve to die. The wages of our sin is death. We deserve to hang on that tree. We deserve to have our our head lifted from us. But, Romans 5 verse 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, hung on a tree for us so that we would not have to. In fact, remember that when, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, to his side was a thief. There was two thieves hanging on a cross, and one of the thieves who hung on the cross next to Jesus said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Don't forget me, Jesus. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me today in paradise. What did the thief do to deserve that? Nothing! He was rightly being put to death for his crimes. It was grace, and the same is true for you and I. Joseph may have been forgotten by men and left in prison, but on the cross, Jesus takes the sins of those who will trust in him. And on him, 
the innocent son of God. He is punished in our place. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. He dies for us in our place. Christ did this willingly. No one twisted his arm. He did this willingly. And on the cross, he was forsaken by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken not for his own sin, but for the sins of those who would trust in him. And they put his body in a grave. He was forsaken, friends, so that you and I today, September 3rd, 2023, can be accepted by God. There's a sense in which on the cross he was forgotten so that God would never forget you as his child. For the cupbearer and the baker, it was three days, three days And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And his resurrection was a guarantee that his love will not fail us. It's an unfailing resurrection love. God will not forget his children. He will not forget you. His love will not fail you if you're a child of of God, if you put your trust in him. And friends, if you're not yet a Christian, if, 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 if you're still living your life your way, I pray that God open your, opens your eyes right now to see God for who he is, to see his holiness, his uncompromising holiness, and to see his mercy and his grace, and to see how they meet in Jesus Christ, and that you would see his love for you today. That's why Jesus came. I urge you, my non-Christian friend, that you today, right now, would repent, that you would turn from your sin and turn from your self-reliance, that right now you confess your sin to God and you put your faith and your hope in Christ and in him alone. You can do that right now. And if you have questions about how to do that or what that means, talk with someone after the service today. Talk with the person that you came with. Talk to one of the pastors at at, at one of the doors. We'd love to talk with you, to pray with you more about this. Raymond Flanks. Raymond Flanks lost 36 years of his life for a crime he didn't commit. Can't get those years back. And as he endured the injustice of being locked up year after year, we would not blame Mr. Flanks for giving up hope, becoming bitter, cynical, resentful, wanting revenge. But like Joseph, Mr. Flanks had no way of knowing why things happened the way they did or how long he would be in that prison cell, but it was It was in prison when his life hit rock bottom that Mr. Flanks heard the gospel. He went into prison as a non-Christian. In prison, he heard the gospel. In prison, he began reading a Bible. And in prison, he was born again, became a Christian. Mr. Flanks lost 36 years of his life. He can't get back, but he gained eternal life. And so for that reason, Raymond Flanks is not bitter today. If you meet him like I did, you'll find a thankful man. As I listened to Mr. Flanks talk about about what happened, he talked about how he also forgave the district attorney who put him into prison. In fact, he talked about praying that he would one day become a defense attorney and fight for people like him one day. And before Mr. Flanks was released from prison, he actually finished a theological degree from the New Orleans Baptist Theological Online Seminary at Angola Prison. Today, Raymond Flanks fights for others who've been wrongly accused and put in prison, and he lives his life today to tell others about the unfailing love of God.
Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we are humbled and we are thankful that you are a God who loves us not because we deserve to be loved, but you are a God who loves us in your great mercy and in your kindness. We praise you as a God who does not compromise his justice or what is right, that in the cross you both punish sin and uphold your righteous demands and you show forgiveness and mercy. And so, Lord, we, we confess our love and our trust in you. We pray that when we are in seasons of waiting, Lord, that we would not waver in our faith, that we would hope in you. Help us to be a church that reminds each other in the times of our weariness that you'd stir us up to love and to good deeds through our relationships together as a church family and give us the faith to believe. May your Holy Spirit as Romans 5 says, convince us of your love for us, that your, your love for us will be poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.